everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and coming to you live over the new and popular technological innovation of Zoom with my compadre, Terry Fakes. Yeah, I think uh, I think everybody's familiar with Zoom now. Yeah, it's funny to me that uh, we used to think we had this great technological trick before COVID. We would hook up two mics, and then we would FaceTime. And we were recording a garage band on the computer while we talked on the phone. And it sounded like both of us had a mic in front of us. And this is actually a tip that we got from Peter Lightheart's podcast. And I was just so, I just thought that was so cool that we figured out how to do that. Well, now Zoom just does that for you. It does all that for you. You don't have to make a phone call. You just do Zoom. It can take your mic at the same time. It's pretty amazing what we've been accustomed to in the last two years. It is. In some ways, it's uh, made us better. Other ways, it's made us very tired. Yes. Zoom fatigue is probably one of the great ideas that's going to come out of the COVID era. Yeah, I think that's true. There's going to be a whole cottage industry, like sub-industry into the productivity literature about Zoom fatigue and how to overcome it. But we have been we have benefited. I'm, I enjoy getting to do this even when we're not in the same place like this week. Um, and get to have these conversations and uh, prep, think about the different ideas together, but also get to spend the time doing the podcast. The other thing I want to mention before we get going today on the book of Joshua is just how thankful we are to all of our listeners. We are approaching the end of the year. And as you're thinking about end of year giving, I just want to remind everybody that we are totally sustained by uh, your generosity. So you guys who give monthly, one-time gifts, end of the year gifts, that sustains our whole ministry for the year. And so as you're thinking about end of year giving, we would ask you to consider and pray about uh, giving a donation to us, which is a tax deductible gift. So we speak as a 501c3 and uh, we would really appreciate it and, it. and it fuels everything we do. Absolutely. And we do appreciate that very much. And that's one of the reasons you don't hear ads and uh, we aren't uh, selling your your uh, URLs or you know your location to anybody because we really have been fortunate enough to have generous givers. Well, this week we're doing one of the books of the Bible that um, I've always felt like I'm kind of split on. The first half of Joshua is one of the most interesting parts of the Bible. The second half of Joshua is one of the most boring parts of the Bible. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is and maybe how to avoid that. I think the second half of Joshua is where Bible reading plans go to die. Even if you make it through Leviticus, you make it through numbers, you think you're in the home straight, you are not until you get past the second half of Joshua. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as we get going. I want to situate Joshua a little bit in, in biblical history and in the, in the span of what you've read so far, if you're reading from the beginning of the Bible through the book of Joshua, you've gotten to the end of the Pentateuch. So you Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, stand together as five books. And what they've done is they've, they've charted human progress from creation all the way through Abraham, through Moses, through the Exodus. And when the book of Joshua starts, we're actually picking up a thread of chronology that ends in numbers. So one, one thing to remember, if you've listened to our podcast on these books, is the book of Deuteronomy doesn't advance the plot at all. It is long speeches that are being given uh, by Moses, and they're recapping the law. That's, in fact, why it's called Deuteronomy. It's the second telling of the law. But what right. Joshua does is it picks up the action from the other side of the Jordan River and is going to talk about how Israel moves into the promised land. 
So if you're starting the book of Joshua, the one thing that you need to remember is we have a little bit of background as to who Joshua is and what he's been doing even before this book begins. So beyond just this broad narrative, how would you situate the beginning of Joshua in biblical history? A great question. It very much connects to the Torah, the first five books, particularly starting in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham in this sense is Abraham is promised that his descendants, whom, of whom he has none at that time, but that his descendants would be very numerous. Secondly, that they would have a land of their own that God would give to them, and then he makes one other promise. But let's focus on the first two. Well, by this time, coming out of Egypt, book of Exodus, they come to the brink of the promised land. They're sitting on the east side of the Jordan River, looking into the promised land, and they are indeed a great nation in terms of the number of people. And the Exodus story really bonds the 12 tribes of Israel into an identity as God's people. And that identity primarily comes from Sinai. They are, and this is one of the two great themes, they are a covenant people. The covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, you see coming about from millions of, of Israelites at this point. So you get the fulfillment of the promise of a covenantal people with God. Secondly, Joshua is the story of the fulfillment of the promise about the land. Uh, the possessing of the land is the key, probably, events that happen in the book of Joshua. So in one sense, Joshua completes a couple of the promises begun in Genesis. But in another sense, it's the continuing story of the Torah. I like the way you put that, because if the Torah is, is about promises made, and there are a lot of promises made, both about Israel and about the law in the first five books, a lot of Joshua is about promises kept. So God being faithful right. to his promises is probably the biggest theme in the book of Joshua, both in, in terms of the nation, as you mentioned, and in terms of the land. And in fact, the two divisions of the book are basically those two promises. The first one being the promise of the nation coming into the promised land. And the second one, what God has promised about the land itself, the actual geography of the land. So the book is titled Joshua, which should give us the indication that Joshua is going to be an important character. And we know about Joshua actually before this book. The first time he's mentioned is in Exodus chapter 17, where he has talked about being a warrior alongside uh, Moses. And I want to point that out because it's easy to think of Joshua in the book of Numbers as Moses' assistant. That's one thing we know about him. But he is not a weaker person than Moses. He is a warrior. You're going to see that throughout the book of Joshua. He's a great military strategist. In fact, he might be the best military leader in the Bible. I don't know. Maybe he'd have a good running with David good on point. that. But he's certainly yeah. one of the most effective military commanders in the Bible. Next, when we hear about him, he is one of the faithful spies who is sent into the promised land. This is in Numbers chapter 14. He and Caleb come back. They say, let's go take this land. Everybody else says there are giants. We don't want anything to do with this place. Israel ends up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But Joshua and Caleb survived the 40 years, and they end up playing a big role in the promised land. So Joshua takes over for Moses. He's named Moses' successor in Numbers chapter 27. He is um, timid in some ways. He's a great commander, but he's timid in some ways, as you can imagine, after following 
the greatest leader <laughs> that Moses has right. had. It even says that in Moses' little eulogy at the end of uh, the book of Numbers. And he begins to lead the people into the promised land. And I want to stop at a really famous passage here in Joshua, which is right at the beginning. This is this is one, you know, I always remember when you have football senior nights and things like that. Um, I, I thought this was only true at a Christian school where I went, but we went to the Ufala, um football game the other night, and a couple of them also had Bible verses. But this Joshua 1, 8, 9 is a verse that you're going to hear four or five times when you have this happen. It is a life verse. It is an encouraging verse. It is an often repeated verse. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think this is really a helpful start to the book of, of Joshua and it's a preview of what's going to come. So situating this back in its context a little bit, uh, and in, it is in some ways the Old Testament Philippians 4.13, uh, but it's even richer in the context that it's given. Why, why do you think God says this to Joshua at the very beginning of the book? That's a good question. Uh, two things jump out at me. One is I do think there is uh, some intimidation, perhaps, of Joshua to lead so great a group of people with such powerful leaders as the heads of the 12 tribes. And so I think he's a little intimidated. Am I up to the task? Something that we've all asked ourselves at various points in our lives. Am I up to this task? And then secondly, I think God is also doing this to assure him and assure the people that he is with Joshua in the same way that he was with Moses. I mean, there are two parts to this verse you just read, verse nine. It says, be strong and courageous, but at the end, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so I think, you know, basically saying, don't be intimidated. You can do this because I am with you. And I would note that a little bit later, just a few verses later, the people answered Joshua and they say, all that you've commanded us, we will do just as we obeyed Moses, we will obey you. And then this is interesting, Cole, at the end of their little speech in verse 18, they say, but just be strong and courageous. In other mm. words, lead us boldly. So right. I think maybe those two, those two things, partly for Joshua, partly for the people. I think that's right. And you have to keep in mind that they are doing real military conquest. Um, there is the assurance of victory from our end of things when you read this, but for them, they must have been terrified going into the promised land, laying siege to these walled cities. And uh, Joshua needed a little bit of confidence that God was going to be with them as they did that. So one of the things I noticed looking back through the book of Joshua is just how many famous stories there are in the first part of this book. I mean, we have chapters one through 12 are the narrative portions of the book of Joshua. Of course, we have this really famous verse at the beginning. We move right into the story of Rahab, who saves mm -hmm. the spies in Jericho. She's the one that is the harlot who lives in the walls of Jericho, saves the spies. Of course, then you have uh, the story of Jericho, where you have the guards dumping slushies on the Israelites as they <laughs> go around and and uh, they Biggie end up. Tales has forever changed my impression of that story. Yeah, who who knew the French had such a hold in Jericho at this point? <laughs> um, but that 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 Veggie Tales video is always in my mind and, and the story of Jericho. But they walk around, they blow their trumpets, the walls of Jericho fall. Then they hit a little bit of trouble 
as they're going through and uh, they deal with some unfaithfulness, which is a theme in, in Israel's history. But they do something really curious uh, in the midst of all this. And I've heard you teach on this several times and it's really stuck with me. Right when they come across the Jordan River, they do something really interesting, something really unique in scripture. And, and so tell us what they do in chapter four. It is very curious. It's not the only time this happens in the ancient world. It's not the only time it happens in the Bible, but it is striking every time it happens. And this is one of the earliest times it happens when they finish passing through the Jordan on dry ground, because God has stop the waters of the Jordan River, even though it's at flood stage. And you probably know that story. If not, please read chapters three and four of Joshua. But you, you probably know the story that there's no way they're getting across this without God's hand. There's no bridge building technology. Nobody brought their bass boat. I mean, they've, they've got no way to get across this river. But God stops the water. So they walk across and before the priests who are holding the ark in the middle of the stream bed, before they come on out and the water comes back, uh, they the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men, one from each tribe, and go get 12 stones out of the river and go stack them up over here. Now, these are not going to be Stonehenge. you got 12 guys picking up stones. So they may be pretty good size. The the significance of the stones is not the size of the stones. It's the fact that they're arranged in a way that anybody that sees it says, that's not natural. Something happened here. This is a monument. Now we build big stones. Uh, the Egyptians built big standing stones, but a standing stone doesn't have to be a big monument. It just is an arrangement of these stones that memorialize something significant that God has done. And uh, so without reteaching an entire lesson, they take the time to do that so that when people come there, they will say, that's a memorial to something. What is that all about? And I do think in our lives, sometimes we want to build big, big stones. You know, it's like we got to make a big deal out of something or it has to be God has to intervene in some huge way. These were small stones set there to remember one of the many things that God did. So this idea of standing stones or stacked up stones, if you want to think about it that way, is a powerful idea to memorialize what God has done in our lives. I love that story in this book because I think of all the things that they're going to do and everything that's going to take place in the promised land, this was the first thing they do on the other side of the Jordan is mark God's faithfulness. Again, back to that theme of kept promises. This is one, one of the times when Israel looks back and says, God has been faithful to us. He has um, done what he said he was going to do, and we want to stop and memorialize that. You also see right after that, the first Passover in the promised land is, is another one of those celebrations where they're marking what God has done. And we know through the podcast that we've done in 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings, Israel was not very faithful to do the Passover, to keep the Passover. Uh, but here they enter in, they keep the first Passover in the land. And that must have been a momentous uh, event in the history of Israel to actually celebrate that festival in the land. And uh, as a, just a small matter that I don't know if people catch, but if you remember for 40 years, they've been eating manna that God provided them the bread. And now that they are in 
uh, Canaan in the promised land, that first Passover, they eat the food of the promised land, and the next day, the manna disappears. Mm. Yeah, that's a that, that's a really important thing to to notice in the text because that manna and the and the quail had been God's provision for them as they were wandering, and now in the land of milk and honey, things have really right. changed. God has been faithful. Uh, I'll throw something at you that we didn't discuss in in the prep, but I think it's just a really unique part of this text is in chapter five. Joshua has a strange encounter in starting at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What do you make of this story? Well, uh, it's a curious little story tucked in here, and obviously it has a purpose. You may know Tony Evans, the preacher. He was preaching a series on politics at one point, and he used this text in this way. He said, sometimes we want to say to God, whose side are you on? And he quotes this text where, notice what it says, Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the angel of the Lord says, no. Mm Mm-hmm. And here's the way Tony Evans phrases it. God didn't come to take sides. God came to take over. And I've always liked that phrase in the sense that obviously God is here with Joshua. They're doing his will. But sometimes I think we want to know, is God on my side? And the right question is, am I on God's side? So I don't know if that's an answer to your question, Cole, but it reminded me of that great uh, phrase from Tony Evans. I I love Tony Evans, and I hadn't come across that, but I think that's exactly right. There is a spiritual element to a lot of these stories that can go unseen. And this is just a great reminder that there's more going on uh, from God's perspective than there is from the human perspective. And uh, sometimes God's purposes are a little bit crosswise with the two parties involved. But we know from later in the story that ultimately Israel is triumphant in this case. And some of that has to do with this encounter. It just has to. Um, because the way they defeat Jericho, especially, is miraculous. So as we move through this this story of the fall of Jericho in chapter 6, and that is really the first half of the first half, the first half of this narrative portion is devoted to that. They run into some problems when they get off mission. You have the sins of Achan or Achan. In uh, chapter 7, they suffer some military defeats. And then... In chapter 10, you get another really famous battle, and my first recollection of this was actually doing a Beth Moore series on this called uh, Sun Stand Still, and it was really a good series. It's the only Beth Moore I've ever done, but I thought it was really well done, and it was all about this story in chapter 10 of Joshua, where the Israelites go and they fight, and they need a little bit more time for the battle to be won, and so God actually stands, he, he makes the sun stand still. And I always laugh a little bit because this is one of those places where you get atheists and people coming in and saying, well, how stupid are these people? You know, that the sun doesn't move, the earth does, and all of that kind of thing. And I mean, there's a pretty easy retort to this. If you're looking up at the sky, the sun looks like it's moving. And so what they're describing here with the sun stopping is that in the course of the sun's usual movement across the sky, it stops. Time stops. We can't get into the astrophysics of this. We'll have to ask Ben Williams next time he's on the podcast right. how exactly this happened. But I think the point of it is pretty clear. God performs an amazing miracle uh, 
for them to have enough time to win this battle. And uh, this is just another example in the book of Joshua of God making sure that his people go and fulfill the promises that he made, that they will capture the promised land. And this one is pretty extreme, but it's it's all part of that same line of, of the story. You know, one of the great lessons out of this story to me is uh, just thinking life application a little bit is God is not confined to the natural world. And all I mean is God is not confined to making sure Israel has better technology, which they don't, a bigger army, which they don't in this case. It's not a matter of, okay, I'm going to have to give you a really good general so you can outsmart everybody. I'm not saying God may not do that, but this story tells me that God is not confined to the typical limits of achieving his objectives that we think. God is able to go beyond the natural realm to achieve his purposes. I mean, it ends with a phrase that for the Lord fought for Israel. And there's so many times for you and me and all of us that the Lord fights for us. And I think it's good to remember that the Lord is not confined by the natural world. Is God can win our battles uh, by supernatural means as well as natural means. Yeah, that line at the end of chapter 10, verse 14, the Lord fought for them. There was never a day like it before since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Is a common theme throughout the history of Israel, both now and in the ages of the kings, when God does some pretty miraculous things to preserve his people. When we get to the end of this story, things start to change a little bit in the book of Joshua. After they have the conquest of the kingdom, they start to lay out the land, and they do a recap of the kings that have been conquered by Moses, the kings that have been conquered by Joshua, as you'll see, this is just a crazy amount of battles that they have fought. We get a very small snippet mm-hmm. of what they've been doing. And then the land that is still to be conquered. And after that, you get 10 chapters of kind of mind-numbing detail. Um, and, and that's where the book really starts to change a little bit. Well, here's my question for you, Cole. Why do you think that's in this book? Because I agree, as you read through it, it is a bit of a wasteland and you read through the Bible in a year and you're wondering, why is this here? Do you have any ideas on the significance of that? Well, I do want to point out two things, and and I think this will get to the point of why this is in the Bible. So we, we do believe, and I'm being a bit facetious here, that this is, the, this is the most boring part of the Bible. I truly believe that, but I think studying the Bible, you realize there is no boring part of the Bible. But at first glance, this is, this is definitely in the running. And we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. We believe all of it is useful. And so I want to throw out a couple of reasons I think this this particular section of the Bible is useful and uh, in some ways really interesting. The first one is if you read far enough into chapter 21, so if you get to the end of the land grants and uh, the layout and the geography, you the, the book itself actually gives you a reason why this section is in there. So in chapter 21, verse 43, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled it, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. So this is uh, th- this is reaching back to Genesis chapter 12, 
where God promises Abraham that he's going to be a great nation, that he's got a land that he's going to bring him to, and that he will be their God. He will give them peace, and through them, he will bless the earth. This passage tells us that the fulfillment of the land promises can be seen in the previous seven chapters, that every acre, you know, every square foot matters and is accounted for. So in one way, they have to go into this amount of detail to prove that God's word came true down to the very exact detail of what he promised them. The whole promised land that he promised to give has now been delivered over to Israel. And so unless, you know, if they had just said, and all that land was given over, it wouldn't have the same effect. They need to tell us exactly where the tribes were by the landmarks. Uh, so that we can know that God actually did fulfill his word to the word. And Laura is taking a class at Southeastern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary online right now, and it's kind of an Old Testament overview. And so I was listening in the other day on the Joshua section. And one of the things the professor said that I thought was really interesting is these landmarks mean nothing to us. But when this book was written and to the people that this book was written about, these landmarks were their life. This was their neighborhood. This is, you know, everybody knows how to get to their house, like in the back of their hand. And usually it's not because of the streets. It's not because of your knowledge of the grid of your neighborhood. It's because of the landmarks that you pass a million times. You know, you go past the park and you take a right. That's part of how we got to our childhood home is you go to the Brahms and you turn left. You know, these kinds of things are true for everyone and your home really matters. And and there's a nostalgic quality and there's a real quality to these landmarks for them as there is for us now. And I thought that was a really insightful point about what this would have meant to the original hearers. That is a powerful idea. And I really hadn't thought uh, as much about it in, in the sense that this is the proof of that the verses you just read that every word came true it's like god's presenting a receipt if you will you know he said here's the receipt read it and you will see that everything is there let me just plant a seed here that you can take a look at later but in verse 44 cole where you read the lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers as you pointed out he's given them the land And they've divided it up, but he also has given them rest or peace from their enemies. That is a foreshadowing or a little seed that's going to grow and bear fruit in the book of Hebrews in particular, where you see that idea grow into all of us as Christ followers, finding our rest in Christ, our Sabbath rest in the kingdom of God. This is the beginning of an idea that I think comes to fruition in the book of Hebrews. Oh, I think you're right on that. That that is a huge biblical theme, and we see a little glimpse of it here. The the last thing I want to say about this goes to the very end of the book of Joshua, and I want to point out something here, not just for Joshua, but just as a reader of Scripture, one of the things that peels back some layers is being able to track these themes that are running through books of the Bible. And the best way to do this is to read big chunks of the Bible at a time. So I'm I'm all for reading devotionally where you have a verse or two, or maybe you're doing more intense Mm -hmm. study. Those things are always good. But don't forget that you can get a lot out of your Bible reading by just spending some intentional time reading widely. So maybe you decide 
for a week or two weeks, I'm going to start in a book and I'm going to read for 20 or 30 minutes without stopping. I'm going to focus on the big picture. And if you do that, the last time I did that through this section of the Bible, I started to track this theme that ends in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. So one of of the principles of, of reading the Bible is you should always pay very close attention to what begins a book and what ends a book, because those are very important things. So here at the end of Joshua, you have the death of Joshua. And then in verse 32, as for the bones of Joseph. Now, when I first read this, I started thinking, who's thinking about the bones of Joseph? I mean, who even asked about the bones? Who who asked about the bones of Joseph? So as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So this theme had, had popped out to me earlier when I was reading in the book of Genesis, because Genesis makes a big deal about these bones and this plot of land. So if you go back, you know something is up because, because in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is passing through a plot of land. And this is not a significant place up to this point in Genesis 12. This is not a very significant place. Uh, but, but basically in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 12, Abram went, he's just departed, he takes Lot with him, and he goes off from Haran, and he gets to this place called Shechem at the Oaks of Moreh. This is another landmark that would have been familiar to these people. And the great thing is these oaks were probably there all that time later. Right. But God appears to Abraham and he says, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So there he built an altar and he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent uh, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So this doesn't seem like a big deal, except if you know that he's going to give Abraham land. And you know where he is on the map at this point. He's crossed into the promised land, and he's going to wander for a long time after this. But he then ends up buying a plot of land that he's going to use to bury his family. And if you follow that thread, you see, okay, they're bringing people back, and they're burying people here, and sons are coming together, even that are estranged, you know, like Jacob and Esau. Um, and Ephraim and Manasseh, they're coming together to bury people on this plot of land. Well, then when you get to the book of Exodus, or actually before, before that, when you get to the very end of Genesis, when the people have gone to Exodus, the last line in Genesis is about this little plot of land. So at the very end, you have Joseph. He's been the head of Egypt, and he's brought his family there, and he is giving his last will and testament in the last part of Genesis. And the last line of Genesis, this is Genesis 50, verse 25. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, this word coffin is also, it's not the same word, but it's, it's what we should think of as the word sarcophagus. So he is embalmed. He is put into a sarcophagus in Egypt. Again, this is the very last line of Genesis. This is really significant. So then in the book of Exodus, we see this same theme show up again. In Exodus 13, when Moses is getting ready to leave Israel, he's got to do something first. 
In Exodus 13, verse 19, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear. And then it repeats this promise from Genesis. So you've got to imagine all these logistical headaches that Moses is dealing with at this point and how little a task it would have seemed like to grab these bones from Egypt. But Moses, being the faithful leader that he is, grabs the bones of Joseph, takes them with him. They are with them for 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, this is extra cargo that you wouldn't think that they could carry. And finally, here at the end, they take these bones in Joshua 24, and they bring them up and they bury them on that same plot of land in Shechem that God had promised 500 or so years earlier. God was faithful to his word, even for the bones of Joseph. God is faithful. And uh, they quote this promise again. And, um, you know, one of the things that ties this whole thing together is in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This was a big deal uh, that he would Mm -hmm. not be buried in, in, in Egypt, but that he would be buried in the land that God gave to his uh, forefather, Abraham. And I just think that's another piece that makes this section so meaningful is that you get to see the hand of God. You get to see his providence. You get to see his faithfulness down to the very minute details of what he's promised. That's really true. I mean, and especially when you think of the time, because from the death of Joseph until Moses is approximately 400 years. And then, as you said, Moses carries those bones 400-year-old bones, a 400-year-old promise that the Israelites had made through 40 years in the desert, and then they fulfill it. You know, Cole, I think the book of Joshua is known for a lot of things, and you've highlighted a lot of interesting things, but the one thing I'm taking away is the book of Joshua is about promises made and promises kept. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.